Hello and welcome to the Double Pivot, the world's most agreeable soccer analytics podcast. I am Michael Cayley. We are back. There's been more Premier League. Stuff keeps happening that, like, throws everything out of joint. Somehow, Manchester United beat Liverpool, and it wasn't like, you know, Manchester United kind of lucked into some goals, which could have been a funny way for this to happen, but no, they Manchester United played quite well. And so here we are after a week of podcasting about how we thought that Manchester United were in a really bad place that we figured they would, to a certain degree, have to get out of, but how? And here we are after a week where we podcast about Liverpool, and we're like, well, here's something that could be a problem, and here's maybe something that could be a problem, but I mean, come on. And they did not play great in this match. So joined by Mike Goodman. Where are we, Mike? Let's do it. The music you heard on the way in is the Whalers. Please download, subscribe, make us happy as podcasters, patreon.com slash double pivot, all that jazz. So yeah, I think the place to start here with, with both of these teams is that the dynamic of this game was basically uh, Liverpool having 70% of the ball. And I think that's important for analysis for two reasons. On the Manchester United side, when we analyze how they played, and they played well, it is important to contextualize it as playing with 30% of the ball, regardless of how well they executed, is not how Manchester United want to play the majority of the time. So we're going to need to analyze their performance and how various members of this 11 played in that context. Secondly... When analyzing Liverpool and their relatively poor performance, it is in fact very important to recognize that they played with 70% of the ball, which is more or less how they want to play. That the ways in which this team did not succeed in this match were not in the ways you might expect when playing Manchester United at Manchester United. Um... You know, going back to before the season, if I told you in week three that Manchester United beat Liverpool at Old Trafford, I think what you would have thought was, oh, I guess Ten Hag came in and was fairly successful and Manchester United were able to play in a way that they wanted to play at home against a visiting Liverpool. And what we instead saw was a match in which Manchester United at home against Liverpool defended and countered quite well, and Liverpool played in possession quite poorly. So I think that's kind of the starting point for talking about this match. Yeah, and I, I, there's been a bunch of discussion about exactly how much this was a counterattacking performance by Manchester United because in the first 10 minutes, possession was close to even. In the first 20 minutes, it was 60-40, and then it increases from there. And I think that this is, like, I think that a lot of people, I think one issue here is that there's just sort of a lot of people who have, like, don't like the word counterattacking, and think that if you're saying that an approach was counterattacking, it was thus in some way flawed or not as good as, and that's not what's going on here. They, they, Contract well, but the other thing about this is that in the period of time where Manchester United were pressing more and were disrupting more of Liverpool's uh, build-up play, and they were preventing Liverpool from having quite as much possession as they had through the first part, through the later parts of the game, in that period they were doing that in order to move the ball quickly. They were never doing it in order to have possession. 
what they did was they created a messy game with lots of transition when they were pushing hard to have somewhat more of the ball. And then when they were pushing less hard to have some more of the ball, they created a game which had longer stretches of Liverpool possession and those same stretches of United transition that they were looking for. Whether they were pushing hard for more transition or for somewhat less transition, nonetheless, it was entirely an approach focused on transition attacking. And that, to me, is I think is the distinction and the thing to look at as, you know, whether, and I, I think that's what I'm trying to capture when I call it a counterattacking performance. Because what it is, is that there is there was no time in this game where Manchester United were trying to control the game with possession and build slowly. It was always focused on creating moments in which Liverpool were out of control in transition. Now, to be fair here, Manchester United's attack still had some very Ten Hagian elements to it. If you go to that first goal, that first goal comes eventually after uh, McTominay breaks up play on the right side of the field, all the way, like, close to the sideline. He intercepts a pass, plays it forward, and then the ball gets worked up the right side through Jaden Sancho, who squares it to Ericsson in the box. Um, and then play, and then possession gets recycled a little bit. And, and then, um, you know, th- there's, there's a little overlap on the left that leads to the cutback that leads to Sancho's goal. That is very, like, vacating your own middle of the field like that, with McTominay wide one way and Ericsson up the field on the other side, in, you know, in transition still, is very much how Eric Ten Hag envisions his team play. So I, I want, like, we should be clear, right, that yes, I would say it's a counterattacking performance, but that doesn't mean that you're not still trying to implement many of the things you want to try to implement. You just need to, like, understand the context in which it is happening, in which you are using your defense to imbalance the other side that you are then exploiting, as opposed to using having the ball to imbalance the other side, which you then exploit. Um, exactly. but I, and one thing we talked about a little bit with uh, United early on is that the degree to which their possession was sterile until it became, like, completely overwhelmingly unbalanced, that's not how Ten Hag wants his teams to work. Right. That possession is supposed to create these moments in transition it, it, through possession. And here... They tried to create those, those moments in transition are something that Ten Hag's system is supposed to do. It wasn't doing it. And here they took a somewhat different approach to creating them, as well as that particular goal being, um, you know, a little wacky and, you know, hey, great, it worked. And I think the, the last point I want to make here at the beginning on United before we f- switch over to Liverpool is sometimes you can debate whether or not these decisions, um, are planned or are the result of the flow of the game and what i would just say here is when you look at um the profile of de gea's goal kicks you can quite clearly tell (laughs) that this is this is this is a planned approach Uh, de gea made one short pass i think in the entirety of the match (laughs) and it was actually a bad one that put Varane under pressure um as opposed to the first two weeks of the season they were kicking it 
long, and they were attempting then to begin a phase of play further from their own goal and either win the ball there or use their defense to unbalance Liverpool in that in that area as opposed to deeper in use the ball deeper in their own area to imbalance Liverpool. Um does that matter? Yeah, it does. Now, we what we don't know is whether like we should expect to see that every week now? I would guess not. Or whether it was a concession to, hey, we're playing Liverpool. And so there is this looming question about United, despite this performance, which is, if they go back to an approach which involves using more of the ball in their own half in order to attempt to imbalance and disrupt the opposition, are they going to be able to do that? It's just that that was not an element of this particular game that mattered. But I think having established all that, the next question was like, well, why were they able to unbalance Liverpool? Also, like, maybe there would be like some successful counterattack, especially like in early, uh, in, in the early phase of this game. But why did Liverpool struggle so much to like exert, create danger around the penalty area? You know, they they ended up with with like 1.5 xg, which is you know you know good. This game this game could have been a draw. You know, Luis Diaz has a really good chance right after the second goal, and De Gea makes a really good stop on it with his leg. Like you know, the guy could he's got some value, and you know that it's one of those sort of it's always funny to me. Like there are certain points in a game, like right before or after a goal, when a major event can occur and people don't track it as part of the story. And I feel like that Diaz chance is like this really big part of the story that just didn't happen. But like, other than that, there was relatively little from Liverpool in this game. But it was like 17 and, shots for 1.5 XG or something. Yeah. And, and a bit, and a huge chunk of them is the Diaz chance and the, and the, and the Sala rebound. Right. Uh, yeah. It's concerning. Now, look, I mean, I think you, there are two things I would pinpoint here. One is, um, Liverpool's midfield, which was it's Henderson, Milner, and Elliott, which was not the midfield that you expect to see out of this team. And this midfield was not good. And then the second thing is when the midfield is not good, it throws a lot of things sort of out of balance for the other two units of this team. Like, ex, it's a problem in attack if the if the midfield right now can't move the ball up because now Firmino is dropping back and Diaz is dropping back and now that just leaves sort of Salah more advanced and then Salah is is oftentimes having to hold up play while the team then moves up and when you have Firmino and Diaz alongside Salah nobody else is really attacking the box to when they come up in support and then on top of that when you have a midfield that is more easily passed through quickly you are exposing your backline and their strength other than Van Dijk is really not you know, having to deal with counterattacks without midfield help. Yeah, I, th- I think the one stat that really stands out from this game is that Manchester United attempted seven take-ons against Milner and Elliott, and all seven were successful. Yikes. Yeah. At, like, there just there just wasn't protection in that midfield. And then, like, who's at the... And then, like, maybe if Fabinho 
is the guy covering for that. You could, he's going to be able to divert those runners. But that, that's not what Henderson can do. Henderson is a possession control deep-lying midfielder. So, like, it's just, you know, a perfect set of problems. And what ended up happening over and over again is that United were able to find someone free in the center of midfield because someone had time to pick out a pass, someone broke past a defender, and then, you know, once Fernandez is, like, looking up and seeing multiple runners— you know, it doesn't matter how good Virgil van Dyke is. That's not a situation you can put any center back in and you're going to have success. I, just, I, I did feel, I think I'm sort of piggybacking what you were saying. There was a fair amount of the problem here was Virgil van Dyke, which like just struck me as wildly off base. I think van Dyke didn't have a great game in the way a striker who misses a lot of chances doesn't have a great game. Which is to say mm-hmm. that at the final moment, especially on Sancho's goal, he probably does make the wrong decision. But it is a very, very difficult decision there. Now, like, we can break down the goal closely, and I kind of think it's worth doing. But one thing that I thought overall is that Trent got um, picked on a lot in, in this match, and sort of on purpose. And... What I kind of think is that Liverpool went into this expecting Ronaldo to start up top. And Ronaldo is at this point not mm. a player who is going to exploit the channel between a center back and a fullback with, with, with bending runs away from goal into space. And Rashford absolutely, sometimes to a like detriment, wants to make that run over and over and over and over again. And it was, like, absolutely just the wrong collection of personnel from Liverpool. And we've talked about how, even in good times, this Liverpool team is a little bit mixy-matchy for for a great team. That you have to sort of pick the right people as part of an imperfect mix to get sort of peak performance. And not having a, a midfielder whose job is to cover for Trent. In, in this matchup, as it turns out, with Rashford starting at center forward, proved to be a big problem. Now, on part, on top of that, I think Trent really did not play well defensively in this match. I think he oftentimes comes in for criticism when it's not fair. When it's sort of like, oh yeah, sometimes like, he's not like an amazing fullback, so he can get a little bit exploited, but it's so clearly within the bounds of, uh, being worth it. But when the rest of the matchup creates a situation in which the team that you're playing is able to keep keying on Trent, he's got to be near the top of his game in order to, like, not be a problem. And in this match, he really was not. And I thought that, in particular, the reason Van Dyke looks bad on the goal is that Trent is not defending anybody after getting beaten. And it's like... It's a problem. Yeah. And, and and then the other thing that is that unbalanced Liverpool in this game is that, you know, Roberto Firmino now has played 140 minutes this season and attempted one shot. Yeah. He's also assisted one shot. And so he's not getting forward. And I believe that it was true partway through the game. I don't double check, but I believe that Harvey Elliott led Liverpool in shots in this match. And like, you know, there's a and so so this is the way the attack sort of rebalances in a weird way 
which is that which is that if you can't get your shots from your forward, yeah, it was Elliot did have four and Salah ended up with three. You're you're going to be moving your most attacking midfielder into those situations as well. And when they brought on Carvalho, he was doing that too. Carvalho had two shots in 18 minutes. And I mean, obviously, then you're you're pushing for the, the game. But with Carvalho and with Carvalho and Elliot, or early on with Elliot, what you're doing is you're moving a guy who's already like you know not a defender in midfield. He he pressures, he presses a lot, but he gets beat when he ends up isolated one-on-one and you're pushing up forward in situations you're going to create more, more more pressure on the guys behind him and put him in more difficult pressing situations. And they're doing that in part because they need that extra runner in order to get, you know, value around the penalty area, which, you know, when you're already pushing your fullbacks up, then you're pushing Elliot up, you're unbalancing your team forward to make up for Firmino and then you don't have the defensive strength leaning going you don't have you don't have the defensive strength at the back that you want and in many ways i think that like what we saw here was everything that didn't work in their first two matches happening without any of the stuff that did work in their first two matches and i think it had a lot to do with the personnel and the injuries and the suspension yeah i think that that's right like i just don't think that a front line of diaz from mino sala is ever what they intended to be running out there but you're missing the two guys that would play at the nine that would be the perfect complement to sala and diaz on, a, on either side in in obviously nunez and, and also jota right so there, I guess this is sort of the best you're going to come up with, but it's, it's telling that what ends up happening, right, is that eventually when they do get the ball into the final third, either Elliot has to crash into the box or Diaz has to do a dribbly run and shoot. Because the mix of guys who can receive passes from Diaz is one guy in Salah <laughs> and guys who will like get into the box and shoot is like, Elliot. And there's just, there's just not enough. You need Firmino. You need either Firmino to be passing to somebody in, in Diaz's spot who was also crashing the box, or you need Diaz to be able to pass to somebody in Firmino's spot who was also crashing the box. And just neither of them really do that. Yeah. And, and so I think that, like, the one of the big questions for Liverpool here, like, you know, in a couple games, Nunez should be back, and that should, you know, fix this problem for as long as he can be back and eventually Jada should be back and then they'll have depth at striker. And like, that seems like it mostly fixes that problem. But the mid and, and the, the midfield question, I think is sort of more interesting because if Milner and Henderson are both cooked and, and you know, that creates, you know, a lot of problems. If the only way you get value out of Henderson is him as a controlling passer at the base of midfield and your defender, your best defensive midfielder also plays the base of midfield and you're not getting much out of Milner, like that, that, and, and Tiago is once again injured, like all of that depth that Liverpool has, all of which is like, you know, most likely this will be okay. Most likely this will be okay. If you just sort of, you know, roll unlucky numbers on a couple of dice, you create a problem that I think has a risk of cascading. Yeah, no, I think that the the dynamic we identified on Liverpool about mixing and matching 
Well, if all of a sudden, like, two or three of the pieces that you anticipated being able to mix and match with are worse than you expected them to be, you have a real problem. I'm not there yet. I, I, I mean, I think that where I am with Henderson is that he's still a good player, provided he plays with either Fabinho or Thiago. And that the problem is only when you have neither of them is Henderson sort of cooked. I think Milner is generally, he just, like, he just, the thing about Milner is that has made him so impressive over the years, because he's a very smart footballer, which you can tell given the, like, the range of positions he's played over his career, sort of with ease, tactically, is that he has been able to adjust as his athletic ability wanes. So that he is asking himself to do only what his body can deliver on. And I thought what was incredibly apparent against Manchester United is that he spent the game not quite able to pull off all the things that he seemed to expect himself to be able to pull off. Now, maybe he can make a further adjustment, but like as you get older and as your your athleticism wanes and wanes and wanes, there becomes a point where you just can't effectively adjust for it enough anymore and remain at a high level. Where where if you are continuing to adjust, what ends up happening is the set of things that you are able to do well becomes so limited that it is equally as bad as if you were trying to do things you couldn't do. And him I worry about in that respect a lot. Now, I think that if you have two really good midfielders, you can probably still cover for that. Um, but if you have Henderson, who needs to be with Thiago and Fabinho, and you have Elliot, who is a promising player, but limited in his own ways still, like Milner is, is, is not good enough to make up, to, to exert himself in that situation at all. So I think that it's thinner than maybe we expected. But, I mean, if what I'm saying is basically, I think the midfield's okay as long as Fabinho or Thiago could be out there with a mix of guys, like, I still think that's pretty okay. Yeah, and and likewise, we're saying the forward line should be okay so long as Jota or Darwin can be out there. Right. And and the problem is that there are still two more games remaining where that's not going to be true. Yeah, but the 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 next question is like, can this Liverpool be okay, team be good enough if either their midfield or front line is not at full strength, as opposed to both? And like, I kind of think yes. Like, I kind of think you can just sort of stumble through with a midfield that has Fabinho, Henderson, and Elliot, and a front line of, uh, you know, Firmino, Salah, and, and, and Diaz. Like, I think you can be okay with that. Like, good enough. Like, it's not the Liverpool we expect them to be as a great team, but like, is it enough to get a couple of results? Like, probably, right? Yeah, I, and I'm also particularly skeptical that they're going to have to, like, that Firmino is a third-choice striker. Right. They they really do have good depth here, and they've just, they're have just they just unlucky with Jota's injury coinciding with Darwin's suspension. And they shouldn't have to deal with that problem too much. 
I think that where where my question arises is that the reason that they were fine the first two games is because Darwin was stupendous. And so that made them very, very good. But like that was it. It was because Darwin was doing so much that it made it relatively easy for Jata and for, for Diaz and Salah and, and, and Trent to find him and that would be the target of the attack. That would be the way it worked. And then everything else could be, you know, somewhat more conservative, somewhat more controlled, and that was fine. Like, my question is, when you don't have the midfield you want, how good do Darwin and Jota need to be to make that work at an elite level? Because certainly we saw that if they've got, like, you know, the best striker in the Premier League up top? Sure, fine, great, yeah, absolutely. The question is, like, what level do we expect them to be performing at over the course of the season? And we just don't know yet. And, I mean, I think that that's also true of, like, you know, Firmino. Firmino's probably better than this. I think that's also true of Harvey Elliott. He didn't have a very good defensive game, but he can do a little bit more than this. Like, a lot of these guys can just sort of play a little bit better, have just played a few games— but that's sort of my, my, my operating question is when something isn't right in midfield, how good do the forwards need to be to make up for it? And how likely is that? Yeah. I still think pretty likely, yeah, but I think that's the, the open question. So on the flip side, do we, having established that Manchester United played in a manner that is different than we expect them to play frequently, do we take things away from this? What do we take away from this? How do we sort of... What are the lessons about United we can take going forward? Yeah, I think that a lot is going to depend on the next couple of matches in terms of how applicable this can be. You can certainly imagine ways in which the way they played in the first 10 minutes could be a way to try to play against against teams Um you know, letting another team have 70% of the ball is probably not going to happen, but playing a high-pressing style, which involves a fair amount of risky passing and a fair amount of turnovers, is certainly something you can imagine a top-level team doing with, 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 with a fair amount of success against a lot of opposition. And one thing that Ten Hag said after the match was that, you know, he quite specifically addressed Ronaldo and said that he thought that a center forward in today's game needs to press, and he believes that Ronaldo can work with them on doing that, but that is just part of the requirements. And, you know, Ronaldo may leave, there's a whole set of that, that's really all about who's going to pay enough of his salary. But I do think that with a pressing front line, something like this becomes somewhat more possible for United to do. I don't know if they will. And I don't know exactly how it'll, it'll work against other teams, but that to me is sort of like the, the like tactical positive way forward. I think that the statistical positive way forward is just like, you know, you toss this in the aggregate and you have your, your priors that this was a pretty good team. And we were saying, I don't know how they're going to become a pretty good team, but they're probably not going to remain a terrible team. And then they did some stuff that made them a pretty good team. And like, that's kind of why the statistical analysis works is because there's some solution out there. You just have to believe that they're not going to fail to find it. Right. I, I do think that it, it, the concern that I had voiced 
about the worst case scenarios for Manchester United was if Ten Hag was extremely unflexible in his belief that you needed to use the ball to unbalance the opposition at all times. The most extreme version of that argument, I think, is fairly counteracted by this match. But yep. you are still talking about him conceding the point against Liverpool, which would be like one of the two best teams in the league. So I think there is a question of how extremely will Ten Hag be committed to using the ball as the primary means of un- of, of, of imbalancing opposition versus using a, a defense which is more okay with giving away possession in order to press and, Im- and imbalance a defense. And I don't think we know the answer to that. And like, honestly, like to some degree, the question is, that question just sort of boils down to like, how insistent is he going to be on having David De Gea kick the ball short as opposed to long? Um, and it's like a real question that we don't know the answer to. Because so much of United's problems in possession comes from transitioning from that first stage of getting the ball out into something moving towards midfield in the final third. On the other hand, like, if you can do that, that's clearly better than lumping it into midfield and hoping to build your stuff from there. So, I think there's a lot of questions left to be answered. I think that Casemiro's appearance, like, raises some, you know, possible variety of answers as well. I do think that this fairly forecloses like the worst of the worst case scenarios in terms of what Ten Hag is as a manager, which is good. I agree with that. I also, I I think that, you know, this tactical adjustment plus Casemiro, Casemiro is another sort of like foreclosure of the worst possibilities. Yeah. Casemiro is going much, much better at, even if they insist on playing out, in that way that doesn't seem right. Costner is just much, much better at receiving the ball in those situations and being available. That that's what he does for Real Real Madrid in, in build up play. He's not a not an expense expansive passer, but he's perfectly good at receiving and holding possession in a way that like, you know, you play Ericsson in that position, you're creating tons of trouble for yourself. Like he just and, and then on top of that, he just like gives them more defensive strength because he still covers tons of ground. Like the amount of money that they are spending on him is bonkers. But like that's for a podcast that isn't about like Real Madrid, that isn't about Manchester United right now this season. And they are spending a bonkers amount of money that whether this is a valuable return for that, I have a lot of doubts. But I think that that really forecloses a lot of the most like, oh God, this is a truly embarrassing, awful season problems. Yeah, no, he's clearly an upgrade over either, over whatever midfielder they choose to play. He's an upgrade. And he certainly makes it easier to play Ericsson next to him. He also makes it easier to probably play McTominay next. I mean, he's just like, none of McTominay, neither of McTominay or Fred are good at all at moving to the place to receive the ball in possession in deep in their own deep areas and neither of them bring the right kind of other set of skills to make up for that given how Ten Hag wants to play so you can play either of them next to Casemiro and let them do their other things 
Or you can play Casemiro next to Ericsson, which hopefully lessens the fact that Ericsson is really pretty darn lightweight to be playing in that role in the Premier League next to a guy who is McTominay or Fred. So, there we go. There we go. So we are going to return a little bit later this week with sort of like little drop-in notes on a bunch of teams. I think we, we want to talk about this game because this game had us thinking more deeply about our priors than any of the other games, which still have us thinking lightly about our priors. <laughs> Cheers, y'all. Cheers, y'all.